Welcome to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher. When illness turns serious, too few families want to broach the subject of -of end-of-life care, which is why some companies have started paying strangers to do it. For more, we're joined by phone from Philadelphia by a health reporter for, for WHYY's The Pulse, Alana Gordon. Welcome to the show, Alana. Thanks for having me, Ann. So you recently wrote an article about this new phenomenon or somewhat new phenomenon of, of, of what sounds like a healthcare telemarketing operation. Who, who's doing the calling and, and what are they, who, why? Yeah, so I recently did a story about this company called Vital Decisions. It's a for-profit company, a few years old. Um, I want to say they started about four years ago um, and they're based in New Jersey. And essentially what they do is there's about 50 licensed social workers there and they develop kind of their own kind of training. Um, And what they do is they contract through insurance companies to reach out to people they've identified as likely being very ill. And they reach out to them through just kind of like a form letter. They send them out. And then these social workers call them and offer them um, advanced care counseling, essentially by phone, all all through the phone. And that can be anywhere from a 20-minute conversation here and there with a family member to some pretty intensive discussions to uh, a person hearing this call and hanging up, and that's the end of it. How do they know who's sick? Is it the insurance companies, and is that legal? Yeah, so there is a certain HIPAA agreement that when going through a certain business, business arrangement, that these sorts of transactions can be made. And essentially, this company has a kind of proprietary way of kind of mining through these insurance roles to see which beneficiaries likely have a very serious illness. So sometimes they may reach out to somebody, and that's not the case, um, and oftentimes it is. So let's say they're looking through, um, you know, 100,000 or so roles of people, they may identify like 1% or so that fit that that description. What are they looking at? Uh, what, what Can you give us a sense of what kind of information gives them, triggers uh, a call? Um, so I'm not entirely sure because it's proprietary in what they okay. say, but they basically look at somebody who may, you know, have a terminal cancer along those lines. And when one of these social workers calls one of these people who may be or may not be dying, how do they approach them? Yeah, so I actually sat and shadowed a counselor for a few hours making these calls, essentially cold calling people or checking in with people. And essentially they have this kind of wrap that says, you know, I, you know, work through your insurance company. Um, I got your contact information that way, and and I'd like to offer you a free service, and it's provided by your insurance company that essentially helps members and families facing complex medical decisions um, essentially, you know, talk about those difficult things and facilitate communication and counseling. One of the terms that they use um, in this is kind of aligning a person's values with the care that they receive. You're listening to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher. My guest is Alana Gordon. She's a health reporter for WHYY in Philadelphia. If you have a question or comment, we're talking about a company. It's called Vital Decisions, and they contract through insurance companies to contact uh, insurance clients who may be dying 
and talk to them about end-of-life decisions. If you have a question or comment about this, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or you can email us at allsides at wosu.org. Is it always clear to the customer who's calling them? Do, do they identify themselves as an employee of the insurance company or as a, an employee of a contractor to an insurance company? How does that work? Yeah, they identify themselves as calling through that particular insurance company plan. So let's say you're in Philadelphia um, and you are a Medicare Advantage beneficiary through Independence Blue Cross, which is one of the companies who I spoke with that contracts with Vital Decisions. You may get a call from Vital Decisions that says, hi, you know, I'm with a company called Vital Decisions. I work through your insurance company, Independence Blue Cross. So that's what they they initiate the conversation with. And, um, you know, I have to say, I, I reached out to, you know, there's a certain visceral reaction, like when, even in just what we're talking about in terms of, wow, insurance company is, is doing what? I mean, there is a certain, you know, really kind of aspect to it. And I initially, when I started asking people about this who hadn't heard of it, for example, there was a, a woman who runs a local hospice agency. She was just just really alarmed and was just like, what is this? What, tell me about this company. And then literally before the next morning, she had already reached out to ask if they could work with her on some services. So it's interesting to kind of see there's a lot of um, questions and, and ethical questions around that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's um, struck a lot of people in terms of this void or this conversation or that may not be happening in a way that is could be more destructive to people because it's not happening. Right. We've had lots of conversations on the show about end-of-life discussions that started were initially triggered by the whole issue from uh, the Obamacare question, Mm -hmm. uh, which was eventually eliminated from the bill, uh, which would have provided funding for these kind of discussions with with your physician. Right. And what's interesting is that since then, for example— you know, initially when this company started, it was around that time, and the, the CEO, um, you know, talked about how it wasn't a very popular proposal at that time. But I think since then, what it's not necessarily being advertised, but insurance companies, places are starting to address this, perhaps circumventing some of the political arena. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've also, I mean, there's a report yesterday in the New York Times and the American Medical Association is is starting to, to lay the ground for, for billing, for example, for doctors to um, be having these kinds of conversations with their patients, with the families. I guess the creep factor comes in with mm-hmm. the idea that it's the insurance company, which has a financial vested interest in the decisions you make about end of life. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and so uh, when when someone when they call a customer, does the customer know that they don't necessarily have to talk to them, or do they have to talk to them? From what I shadowed and what I saw, um, it's really up to that customer. Again, it's it's inter- the, they introduce themselves and, and say what they do, and and it, I was struck sitting there again. I I mm-hmm. didn't shadow for a long time, but. Um, Suddenly, you know, between the course of uh, initial, hi, my name's, you know, Kate Schleicher was one of the social workers I, I shadowed. She's 27, um, has a nice, calm voice. And, and within 10 minutes, the man in the other line was sharing about the difficulties of having an oxygen machine and breathing and, and whether they were talking about whether he's talked to his family about that. Um, so 
there, there, it's, it's not a mandatory thing by mm-hmm. any means from what I can gather. Um, you know, I think some of the questions that, that doctors have posed to me and, and those in the, the business in the field and in healthcare, you know, there's an issue of transparency. So the, a company like this talks about having non-directed counseling. Like the end goal is that, meaning that the end goal is that wh- however you're, you're planning things or what you're doing, it's, it's about aligning what you want, your values with what happens. And so often when we're faced with these situations, we may, you know, not speak up or there may be that, you know, wanting what your loved one wants and the mm-hmm. loved one wants, thinks they're doing something for you. And then it just kind of maybe care happens in a way that you might not want. So that's kind of what they talk about. But again, there's an issue of transparency. And so, um, you know, they talked about there's a, a, a counseling network where they send things for review mm-hmm. where, you know, they have other counselors look them over. But, you know, there is that issue of as a physician, you know, you have that Hippocratic oath, you have that um, ethical obligation to a patient. Mm-hmm. And when you are a social worker working at a company with a model that, you know, is through talked about through this non-directed counseling at the same time, where who's who's the ethical devotion to. And I think that raises some ethical questions. So a lot of the doctors that I've talked to about this and people in the industry say, you know, this is a great idea. Um, Different people have reacted in this way. You know, these sorts of things need to be happening more. Mm -hmm. But then there's a question about we want to make sure it's transparent. We want to make sure, you know, that the conversations really are totally neutral. Kim in Upper Arlington, you're on the air with uh, Alana Gordon. She's a health reporter for WHYY. Hi, Kim. Hi, how are you? Fine, thanks. I just wanted to um, expand a bit on the conflict of interest question and see what your guest um, had to think about it. Um, In addition to the very troubling issues of what would otherwise be privileged information being extended to a third party, whether they're titularly under the auspices of the insurance company or not, is my question regarding how could anyone believe that an insurance company who would otherwise be expected to care for, to pay for end of health care, um, would have anyone call who would advise anything but the most uh, drastic end of life directives such as DNRs, living wills that say, you know, I don't want an extraordinary care. Mm-hmm. Etc. I, I I just I can't imagine that an insurance company would employ anybody on their behalf that would do anything other than at least subtly pressure people into the most draconian measures. I just wanted to know what your guests thought about that. Alana Gordon. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a, a valid question. Um, I I don't necessarily have an answer, and I'm not here to defend any any one view one way or another. Um, I would say that um, one of the points that the, this company makes and, and points to some research that talks about kind of the importance of conversations in those, you know, final months before somebody gets truly, truly ill, um, and that oftentimes we have a kind of a health system, and this can be taken beyond just talking about an insurance company per se, that um, doctors get paid more to treat people aggressively, and, and, and they get you know, the the health system is built in a certain incentive system. A lot of doctors talk about where it's it's difficult to insert those conversations and that communication in happening. But when it does, I was talking with a, a guy that heads uh, the hospice program at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, 
oftentimes they find that people want less aggressive care, that oftentimes in those final final months there may be a different kind of option or a combination of options that because the conversations aren't even happening, that may not even be considered. So again, I'm, I'm not trying to defend one way or another. I'm just kind of expanding it out. Thanks a lot, Kim, for that. So what is in it for the insurance companies then um, to just kind of piggyback on what Kim was saying? Why are they doing this? Out of the goodness so, of their hearts? <laughs> so um, I, you know, I don't know kind of the back ends and the workings of, of these companies. So. But what do they What do they tell you? Yeah. So when I, I talked with a local uh, insurance provider here in Philadelphia about this and um, and if you read in some of like the manage the, the publications in the industry, there's a lot of conversations around quote like value based reform and care coordination, mm-hmm. and that has to do with uh, starting these pilots and things to um, help patients manage chronic diseases. So in this building in, in downtown Philadelphia, you know I'm on the 40th floor, and the floor below me is is just a a floor of nurses essentially calling people and social workers to help patients that have chronic diseases. Um, you know, coordinate, and, and I'm saying coordinate, but but really kind of see about how the connections are going between the prescriptions and the mm-hmm. doctor's visits and all that sort of thing. So that's kind of what they talk about is this broader, um, you know, approach to just coordinating care, making sure patients are understanding what's going on and are, are active parts of that process. Um, you know, the, the idea of, of any acknowledgement that these conversations aren't happening, um, you know, at the same time, let's be real, this program, based on what this company has assessed, totally saves these companies' costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by their own estimates, you know, if they're seeing um, across the board in a very average way for each patient that they work with, it's about $10,000 in savings and, 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 and perhaps care that was more aggressive that then didn't happen. Okay. Well, Alana Gordon, thanks for talking about it with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Alana Gordon, she's a health reporter for WHYY in Philadelphia. Coming up, more Wellness Wednesday. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Welcome back to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. Athletic mascots run the gamut from the fierce, like a bobcat or a lion, to the more historical patriot or blue jacket, go jackets. And then there's Pookie the Clown, the unofficial mascot of the popular CrossFit fitness program. CrossFit's workouts are so intense, it's not unusual to lose your lunch, apparently, during a session. Uh, Its other mascot... um, is named for a type of kidney failure. But short, intense workouts offer a host of benefits, and CrossFit has seen exponential growth in recent years. Joining us from Colorado to talk about this fitness trend is Washington Post health columnist Christy Ashwanden. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thanks so much for having me. Also joining us in the studio is 11th Element CrossFit Hilliard owner Graham Holmberg. Welcome to the show, Graham. Thanks for having me as well. So, Christy, you just reviewed a book about CrossFit called Learning to Breathe Fire. Uh, First of all, for people who don't know, tell us what CrossFit is and what that book was about. 
Yeah, so uh, Burning to Breathe Fire is really a book that gets into the CrossFit culture, and it really is a culture. This is something that I I learned from reading the book and I think explains a lot of what, what people find confusing about CrossFit is that it's not just a workout, it's a cultural identity. Um, the workouts themselves are very short. Um, they rarely last more than 20 minutes, and they they consist of these routines of different exercises done um, in certain combinations, certain um, certain forms. So you might do uh, five repetitions of one exercise, 15 of another, 20 of another, and you cycle through these. Some of them are ones that are as many uh, repetitions as you can do in 20 minutes. Others are just uh, you know, it's laid out. You do this, and then you do that, and then you do this other thing. Um, but that that's kind of it in a nutshell. And um, is it tend to be group, Graham Holmberg? Is it is it a group kind of approach, or is it individual? Yeah, the uh, the the most popular style that we see now is done in the the gym setting or what we call the box. Um, but it's definitely, I think, is probably the the main reason why it's it's caught fire in the way it has is is it's it's a lot of fun when you do it with with your peers. Um, and then the environment's just really neat that, uh, you, you know, you may have a doctor with a teacher, with a stay-at-home mother, with a former professional athlete or college athlete, all doing the same workout, all getting um, the same intensity, depending on their degree of uh, background and level of fitness. But uh, to be able to kind of high-five each other and walk out, uh, knowing that we kind of all accomplished something together, and uh, you probably wouldn't have done it on your own had it not been for, for that group experience. So there's definitely a, a double-edged sword of, of you wouldn't maybe have done that on your own that we obviously have already just you know slightly mm-hmm. discussed. But I think the original intent of CrossFit when it started was uh, Greg Glassman, the CEO, had uh, designed CrossFit workouts, put them on a website. A lot of his uh, clients that he was training traveled a lot. He had surfers. He had some celebrities out in Santa Cruz, California. So when they were on the road, they needed to be able to, to keep doing their personal trainer's uh, workout style while they were on the road in hotels and traveling. So he, he created CrossFit.com, created a website for them to find and access his programming um, no matter where they were. So it was originally designed to be done by yourself, but it's definitely uh, caught a lot of momentum in the group setting. Tell us about the culture that Christy referred to. What What's the culture? What do you? How do you describe it? Um, there's the, uh, I just heard a joke, and uh, my experience, I've been in CrossFit for uh, almost eight years now and played two sports in college and uh, won the CrossFit Games in 2010. So my, my background with CrossFit is definitely positive, very positive, uh-huh. and uh, I do it every day. And um, the the culture, it, it's funny that the movie Fight Club, a lot of people have heard oh. the movie Fight Club, and they say the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Well, people <laughs> okay. joke in CrossFit, and they say the first rule of CrossFit is you always talk about CrossFit. So... Um, People in that culture, they once you kind of drink the Kool Aid or they they experience these workouts, it's like you absolutely love it and you just you you want to tell everybody about it, or it's, you feel like it's just not for you and you're like that's a cult and I don't ever want to be a part of it. But uh, it, it's the culture that I, I'm I'm exposed to and I see every day is it's a positive environment, people encouraging one another. Um, as I said before, high-fiving each other and getting an experience, a workout that uh, with a group of people that um, you just, it's its not typical from your everyday gym scene 
versus going into a gym and seeing everybody with their headphones in, doing their own thing, nobody has a conversation, and half the time you're getting mean mugged if you, you touch the wrong dumbbell or barbell that somebody else is already using because, you know, they're over watching Sports Center for five minutes and you thought they weren't they were done with it. Mm-hmm. And, and you get on it and they come over and they're like, I'm not done with that set there. So I, I think sometimes it's uh, as, as intimidated as people think CrossFit gyms are, I think that there's the same level of intimidation that goes on in everyday regular Globo gyms. Uh- Christy Ashwanden, is that is that your sense about the culture? Is that supportive, um, uh, high five kind of atmosphere? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I want to say one of the things that um, I find very appealing about CrossFit is that it's an environment in which women are celebrated and rewarded for being strong. This is really contrary to you know, most of our culture, and uh, this is something that Ms. Hertz really documents in the book, showing how so many women have really sort of found a sense of empowerment in CrossFit. They go to the, the box, and they are encouraged. And in many cases, you know, they're, they're not just, you know, sort of keeping up with the men, but, but challenging them and sort of finding this, this strength. And, and, you know, people of all ages and fitness levels starting out have found this, this sort of strength. And I think that that's part of the cultural appeal, too, is that people go in there and they find that they're capable of things they didn't think they were capable of. And that's, you know, that's empowering. That's really important. I think it's a great, great thing that people can find. You know, the, the question really becomes, you know, whether, you know, this is taken too far where people are getting hurt. And there's no doubt in my mind that CrossFit can be done safely. The big question is whether this is a culture that values safety over results. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the answer to that really is it depends. You know, I've talked to people who have been taught the proper technique, gently brought up to speed on the workouts of the day and the different exercises and they're you know it's clear to me that they're doing it in a very safe way a very supportive way but then I've also talked to people who say that it's all about the results and you know there's no care given to the technique and you know the the culture that is documented in this book that I reviewed really shows that that is often the case where people are really um, you know the person who pushes themselves past the, the pain is heralded but the person who stops before rhabdomyolysis steps in isn't given any glory. And I think that's where the problems come in. You're listening to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Ann Fisher. We're talking about CrossFit. It is a business uh, that uh, there's franchises um, around the world now. And we're in a studio with us is Graham Holmberg. He's the owner of 11th Element CrossFit Hilliard. On the phone, Christy Ashwanden. She's health columnist for the Washington Post. If you have a question or comment, you can give us a call, 614-292-8513. Isaac in Columbus, you're on the air. Hi, Isaac. Hi there. Um, I am a, a CrossFit coach, and I've worked at a, a few gyms around Columbus, and uh, I don't know if you guys have touched on it yet, but I wanted to kind of share a couple red flags that uh, people who have asked me about CrossFit, I kind of want to make sure they know before they get started. Okay. Um, If if a gym is not offering some type of fundamentals class or on-ramp style class, um, like your your last guest was saying, to make sure – uh, members are learning the movements, learning how to do them well um, and, and safely above all else. If that's not there, try to find a different gym. Hmm. Um, and as far as coaching goes, you know, I, I myself have been injured doing CrossFit and I had to take a couple months off um, and partially just because of bad coaching. 
And once I went somewhere where they actually broke down my form, um, gave me a lot of flexibility work to do, a lot of recovery work to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've gotten exponentially better over the last year. Um, so if, if those two things aren't there, you really need to find a gym that does offer that because they are around. There are a lot of gyms around Columbus. Um, and I, I think Graham's gym is a, a perfect example of one that really tries to embody all aspects of CrossFit, not just putting you on your back at the end of a workout. <laughs> Appreciate that. Okay, Isaac. Well, thanks a lot for your call. Thank you. Thanks. Graham Holmberg, can you run us, take us through a typical 20-minute workout? It sounds like there isn't a typical. I mean, they change them up a lot, sure. probably, I would imagine. Yeah, the, um, you know, what you normally would walk into a CrossFit gym, the, the session typically lasts an hour. And so, for, for us at our gym, we kind of we start out with a um, maybe a faith portion, maybe some scripture. But we try to we try to give people a mindset and a um, an understanding of you know why why are you in here doing this? What are, what's the bigger purpose of just coming in here and pushing themselves? But to to really just kind of start to really get their mind on the right track of of focusing and what we're what we're trying to deliver each day. We then usually warm up for anywhere from five to 15 minutes, depending on what the rest of the hour is going to look like. Um, if the, the workout's longer, we don't need to warm up for forever. But if there's a lot more weightlifting and more mobility demands from the movements, the warm-up's uh, more intensive. Um, then we focus on skill work and technique work for a good 15 to 20 minutes. And we give people the opportunity to weightlift and have coaching with um, with smaller sets, getting a chance to have a coach watch them move through the lifts and critique and, and fix. Um, nobody's going to move perfect. It's it's kind of a sport that uh, sport of weightlifting or gymnastics. Uh, you can never master it. So it's just a matter of being as efficient as possible during all things and uh, understanding your body. So that's that's usually what that twenty minutes of skill and technique work lasts. Um, so again, it's anywhere from weightlifting to gymnastic elements to conditioning elements. Um, and then we we then go into a workout of the day, which wad everybody in CrossFit, you know, you start to know all these abbreviations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be anything from calisthenics, um, cardiovascular, you're rowing, you're running, you're jumping rope, you're, you're weightlifting. Um, and this is where if we see injuries occur, it's going to be in these intense workouts because... Because of the repetition? It's, it's somewhat of the repetition. It's somewhat of the environment. Um, and a lot of times it's it's tougher for the coach to to act with the athlete. You know, if you think about, uh, let's use football, for example, you know, in practicing, the coaches can step in a lot more and stop the play. But a lot of times out in the games, unless you're calling a timeout, the play just kind of keeps yeah. continuing on. So the coach can kind of throw out his his two cents and tips and, and coaching abilities from the sidelines. But when the game's on, there's this isn't really the chance to critique and fix things. And so somebody who maybe isn't moving really well at the beginning of that workout, five to 10 to 15 minutes later, potentially could be doing a lot of damage. But again, that's where, as Isaac said, having good coaching and uh, and having a coach step in and help out, regardless of if it's the workout time or pre-workout time, it's crucial for, for that gym to have that going on in their, their facility. Christy Ashwanden, um Graham Holmberg mentioned scripture, maybe a little bit of scripture at the beginning. Um, his t-shirt says faith and hustle on it. To what extent does religion play a role in this? Um, that's a good question. Um, 
And my knowledge, I will say, on this particular, on, on that question, um, comes entirely from J.C. Hertz's book, Learning to Breathe Fire. So I want to just preface that by mm-hmm. saying that it may be incomplete. Um, it appears to me, though, from reading this book, that it's something that's common in some CrossFit boxes and that that is an emphasis, but it's certainly not universally so um, and so, um, and maybe Graham can can jump in here and tell yeah. me whether I'm correct on this. But I, but I don't think that it's this. This is sort of a subset of CrossFit boxes, is my understanding. Yeah, okay. for sure. Um, four time four time champ Rich Froning. Um, I won the the CrossFit Games the year before. He's been on his his streak. Um, you know, Rich and I became good friends, and uh, being Christians and and knowing the Lord was something that him and I both shared in common. So for a guy who stood on the podium four years in a row um, and has not shied away from the topic of um, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus Christ has saved my life, that um, that's become something that, you know, I think it's piqued some people's interest. And, you know, the year I won the games and Froning was second and Chris Spieler was third, all three of us were born-again Christians. And, you know, we kind of joked around, like, was that an accident that all three of us are staying on the podium together? Um, So I I definitely believe that for me, after some of my high school and my college career and some of the lifestyle I was leaving, that uh, that I feel like God's played a huge part in in finding my my role as a But it's not necessarily a requirement for a CrossFit. No, it is absolutely not. That's just something that... yeah, it's definitely there's some pocket gyms that have that 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 element to them, and um, I would not say that that's something that you'd see as mainstream. Let's talk about what I raised in the uh, introduction, which is the unofficial mascot. Sure, is Pukey the clown, and um, another mascot, unofficial mascot, I guess, is uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name, but Uncle Rabdo. Rabdomyelitis. Rabdomyelitis is a type of kidney failure. What about that? That sounds dangerous. Absolutely, sounds dangerous. Um, I actually. In my gym experience, I have never, in six years of owning a gym here in Columbus, I've never had a member, to my knowledge, have had rhabdo. Um, now, obviously, Which it has some means different... they've lost so much fluid? Typically, rhabdo is found in car accidents when muscle, when there's muscles ripping, muscles tearing, happening, and muscle gets into the bloodstream. Okay. The kidney overworks um, because it's recognizing something that's not shouldn't be there. Right. So uh, extreme nauseous, um, swelling of that area, usually a sign is, you know, a person's urine is Coca-Cola colored and, and it's, it can be, it can be deadly. It's get to that person to that hospital, you know, ASAP. Um, so again, I've never seen that, that extremity of it mm-hmm. in my gym. I've seen people with sore muscles. I've seen people with some swelling to areas, but nothing that's, um, that's like to a red flag. And I'm like, we need to get an emergency vehicle out here right now. Um, so it's, what it's about the puking? uncommon. I actually, myself, I joked about this the other day. I said, I've never puked from a workout. I've pushed myself. Like I said, I played football and baseball, two sports in college, four years, never puked. Um, you see it typically people who puke they're they're probably maybe drank some milk or they ate a little too close to the workout. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe didn't have enough food in their system. So their body just is kind of running on fumes. So they, or it's very, very hot, you know, so our gym, we don't have AC turned on in there and we have some 90, high 90 degree days. And so, you know, when you're working out and you're pushing yourself hard in uh, 90 degree weather, um, the body gets a little nauseous sometimes. But it's, I would say, in my experience, I I can count on one hand the amount of times I've literally seen people puke in six years of running a gym. Uh, How much of a role does that play in the book, Christy? 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. Neither Pukey the Clown nor Uncle Rabdo are mentioned at all in the book, which mm-hmm. I found a little bit strange. Um, but what is documented in the book is is just, you know, again, going back to this idea of culture, of this culture of, you know, pushing people, you know, to their absolute limits, which can be empowering, but it can also be dangerous. And, you know, I've spoken with a lot of people, coaches, exercise physiologists, et cetera. I myself come from a, a um, athletic background. I'm a former elite ski racer. And, you know, a national team coach once told me that the bravest thing an athlete can do is know when to stop. And knowing when you reach the line between training and overtraining, you know, that's a really important thing. And that's that's something I did not see a lot of, um, you know, in this book and the culture documented in this book. There's a video um, that's described, and in fact, I put this in my review because it just seems like it really encapsulates what people love and what they hate about CrossFit. Um, this video is a, it's a video of some women doing a workout of the day, which has become known as Nasty Girls. And um, it sort of focuses, the focus in the book anyway, is on the, the very last woman to finish. She's really struggling. Um, she's doing some lifts. Her, her technique falls apart. At one point, she drops the weights on the, the floor. Um, her knees kind of um, pushing inward, it, it looks very dangerous. Um, so you have, you know, this will to push through and push yourself further than you thought you could go. Mm-hmm. Also, the disregard for safety and proper technique, and it's sort of the thing that people love, but also, you know, the naysayers hate about about CrossFit is that, you know, you have people that are just pushing themselves. She's obviously exhausted, but she's determined to finish the workout, and she does. And, and to my knowledge, she, she wasn't hurt. But I think that it really shows that it's hard not to watch that video and really want to be rooting for her. And uh, I think that a lot of people that watch that may say, wow, I want to do that. I want to be able to push myself like that. You know, whereas the uh, exercise physiologist or physical therapist who's watching might say, oh, ouch, no, 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 please stop. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I guess Graham Holmberg let you have the last uh, thought on that. Uh, The image of pushing yourself too hard, is it a healthy one? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's definitely, you know, a double-edged sword with it. There's, there's the individuals, you know, like myself. Um, and then there's the, that, uh, that I, I want to push every last bit of energy, every mm-hmm. last bit of ounce of uh, effort that I have in me. Um, you know, and I'm going to scratch and claw to, to, to get across the finish line. And that's, that's where, you know, as a coach, specifically in my gym where it's it's really our duty to get to know our clients and get to know what people you know are going to respond well to and um and you know even there's some members that they they want me yelling at them they want me to push them through and then there's some members where I need to pull the reins back on them I need to stop them because um, it doesn't matter what I say to them they're not going to fix their form so I'm going to jump on their barbell and say look you're here. It's September third. It's. It doesn't matter what happens today in this workout. I'd rather see you come back the rest of the week healthy than getting injured right now. So, um, but it's it's a tough line to to cross. But for sure, when you see people's knees moving in the wrong ways and they're the way they're moving the barbell incorrectly, um, I absolutely agree with you. It's it's hard as a coach to you kind of cringe and you're like, I need you to stop, and they're refusing to stop. Um, and it's it's one of those things where. Um, you just kind of you're you're hoping that they don't get hurt and that uh, and and you know that that definitely leaves a bad mark and an image for your sport and the the, the style of training that we all have loved um, and it's kind of one of those things that it's there 
and um, we don't encourage that or condone that, but it, it kind of happens definitely more, more regularly than, than we'd want. But it's one of those things that um, you can't always predict it when it's going to come. Christy Ashwanden, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Christy Ashwanden, she's a health columnist for The Washington Post. We'll have a link to her story on our website at WOSU.org slash all sides. And Graham Holmberg, thanks to you as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Graham Holmberg, he's the owner of 11th Element CrossFit Hilliard. Wellness Wednesday continues. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 MPR News. Welcome back to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. Women who choose the riskier double mastectomy to treat cancer affecting one breast may not boost their chances for survival. That's according to the findings of a recent large study published yesterday in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Joining us now is one of the authors of the study from the Stanford University School of Medicine, Dr. Allison Curian. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So first of all, who and what were you looking at in this study? So we studied women throughout the state of California over the years of 1998 to 2011 who were diagnosed with breast cancer. It ended up being nearly 190,000 women throughout the whole state. And we were interested in the question of which surgeries were being used to treat breast cancer and what the survival was after those surgeries were done. And what were the what was the the uh, world were, what were the options how many surgeries would there be right so when women are considering treatment for breast cancer they have three options one would be what we call breast conserving surgery a lumpectomy followed by radiation the other would be a single mastectomy, removal of the breast with the cancer in it. And the third option that we increasingly have been seeing these days is double mastectomy, removal of both breasts, one of which has cancer and the other doesn't. And what do we know about that increase in the number of double mastectomies? What, what's triggered that in the first place? So that's a great question. In terms of what we know about it, over the past few years, we've seen various studies, and I and my clinical experience have also seen more women choosing double mastectomy to treat one-sided breast cancer. So part of our motivation in this study was to see if that was true statewide, and indeed, we found a significant rise in double mastectomy throughout the time period. The question as to why is really an interesting and mysterious one. Various different Authors, doctors, health policymakers have tried to figure this out, and the thought is that it may be in part due to concerns about risk and perhaps related to some of the new diagnostic technologies and may also be related to new reconstruction techniques where people get more symmetry by doing both breasts at the same time. Okay, so it's not necessarily about preventative Again, every woman is different in mm -hmm. terms of what she is planning. And I think for many women, the goal is certainly to prevent a new cancer in the opposite breast and minimize their chance of ever having to be treated for breast cancer again. And then there is also this component of the cosmetic aspect in terms of symmetry on both sides. Now, this study, did it 
did it uh, account for the inherited form of breast cancer? So another excellent question. That really is a separate situation. This was a statewide study that considered the average woman with breast cancer, and it applies to the general population. A woman who has a genetic mutation like BRCA1 has much higher risk than the average woman. In this study, we didn't have information about genetic mutations, and we weren't able to look at that. The mutation carrier would be in a different position in terms of bilateral mastectomy for prevention, and there's a lot more evidence to show that that's a beneficial choice. My guest is Dr. Allison Kurian. She's a professor of medicine at Stanford University and one of the, the authors of a new study. It was published in the Journal of American Medical Association yesterday, Journal, Journal of the American Medical Association yesterday. If you have a question or comment, you can give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at allsides at WOSU.org. So the finding was that women who choose the riskier double mastectomy to treat cancer affecting one breast may not necessarily boost their chances for survival. Can you tell us how you made those measurements come out that way? Certainly, yes. So we took data from the whole state, so the large and very diverse state of California, using a state cancer registry, the California Cancer Registry, which is really a wonderful tool for research and understanding what's happening with cancer. And we compared groups of women who had had these three separate surgeries, breast-conserving surgery, single mastectomy, and double mastectomy, over the time period of 1998 to 2011 to understand what the trends were in choosing different types of surgeries. And then we followed the women's survival over time and looked at who had had the best survival between these groups of women. To what extent did the issue of radiation or chemotherapy come into play? Yeah, that's also a great question. That was something that we knew from our data. And when we looked at radiation, we basically were including women who had had that after their lumpectomy, which is a standard thing to do. And what we're able to do in these studies is use some analytic techniques to control for use of other medications like chemotherapy. So it's sort of like saying, given that everybody received chemotherapy or everybody didn't receive chemotherapy, would we still see differences in survival after the surgery types? And you did. And we did. Is the significance of this a cost-benefit analysis or a risk-benefit analysis or both? So that's a great question, and I think it really is a risk-benefit. I think cost wasn't something that factored into this study, and I think Indeed, all of these procedures are covered by insurance, so I think cost is probably not the driving factor here, at least for most women in making this decision. There could be exceptions, but I think for most women, that probably isn't it. I think certainly it's a very complicated and personal decision, and our goal here was to provide more information in terms of survival outcomes to help women make decisions. Right. So I was going to say, from here, when 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 a study like this comes out, what should the rest of us take from it at this point? What what else do we want to know or learn about when it comes to treating for breast cancer? Absolutely. So I think we should take from it the finding that if women are choosing double mastectomy, they should be aware that they probably will not gain a significant improvement in survival from it, and that should be factored into their choices because it is a more invasive surgery. And so it's something to consider very carefully if indeed it doesn't improve survival. 
And I think in terms of what we need to know after this study, one of the things I think is that we as physicians need to get better at communicating with patients, understanding their goals, and explaining the various options and what the different pros and cons are. Why is it so risky to have a double mastectomy? So it's a great question. It's not that it's terribly risky. Uh, it is slightly more likely to have complications than the other surgeries. So when I say complications, I mean things like infection, repeat procedures to deal with implants and other issues like that. So those are the standard medical issues. Psychologically, this is a big deal. It is removal of both breasts and that can be an issue that can be hard for some women to adjust to. Some women adjust very well, particularly if they're very sure it was what they wanted. Mm -hmm. But for others, there can be issues of regret, and it just is a complicated situation. The the uh, cost, the significance of the cost uh, benefit of doing it, you said most women don't worry about that because insurance covers it. Is there, um, are there any ramifications of, for insurance coverage of this kind of thing when we learn that it doesn't improve um, your, uh, your, your, your uh, uh, chances for survival? Well, I think it's one study, and it's a very big study, mm -hmm. but we always would be careful to make any recommendations of that kind based on a single study. And moreover, this is not a study by any means that says that no one should do double mastectomy, mm -hmm. not at all. It is a study that attempts to understand what happens after people do and really just to provide more information. Double mastectomy is a complicated and personal choice. Women might do it for various reasons, including peace of mind. And I think we're certainly not at a point where any policy or coverage changes would be recommended. We have an email from a listener, Ruth, who asks, what stages of cancer were included in the study? Yes, so we included all stages from stage zero, the non-invasive stage, to stage three. We did not include stage four, when disease presents metastatic or widespread all over the body, because that's usually not a situation where surgery is the primary treatment. And as far as boosting their chances for survival, it doesn't boost their chances for survival, um, according to your study. Mm -hmm. um, what do we mean by survival? Is that meaning boosting their chances for not getting cancer again or for not getting breast cancer or for living longer? Being alive. For being living alive. Longer. So yep. what? So was there any sense? Did what? How did their lives end? Was it necessarily breast cancer? So we didn't go into great detail about causes. There was evidence that both death from all causes and death from breast cancer were not different between the groups that had double mastectomy versus breast-conserving surgery. And once again, the 190,000 women were yep. in this study. That's a huge number, right? Mm -hmm. It is. It is. It's a, it's a very large study. And the nice thing is that it does cover the whole state. It doesn't leave groups of women out. So we think it's very representative. And California being an extremely diverse state, that exactly. gives you a lot of uh, information. It does. It does. We were very fortunate to have the California Cancer Registry, which is really a unique and wonderful research tool to do this study. Did you find any significant breakouts in terms of gender? I'm sorry, not gender, but age, um, uh, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic level? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. We did see some differences by age. We found that bilateral mastectomy, double mastectomy rates rose the fastest among young women, women under the age of 40, but we actually didn't see any improvement in survival in this age group nonetheless. We did see some intriguing differences by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status in terms of which surgery people had and what their outcomes were. So interestingly, the women who had double mastectomy were generally non-Hispanic white of high socioeconomic status and privately insured. The women who had single mastectomy were primarily racial ethnic minorities of lower socioeconomic status with public or Medicaid insurance. So there were very different profiles of women. Okay, Jennifer and Columbus, we're running out of time, but I wanted you to get your question in. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Go ahead. Um, my question is, I am a cancer survivor of malignant melanoma when I was 16, but I'm now 31, and I'm also a family member that has had multiple women in my family with breast cancer, and we've been tested for the gene, but don't have it in their blood, which is weird, um, in our genes, which is weird. My question is in regards to, in having a double mastectomy, is there any correlation to it decreasing, obviously, the recurrence of any type of breast cancer or related cancer? Maybe not affecting the survival rate, but maybe decreasing the recurrence rate of cancer. Okay. Thanks, Jennifer. So that's a great question, and congratulations on being a survivor. That's wonderful. Um, I think it is tricky in a setting where there's a lot of family history because the risk of a cancer happening is higher than for the average woman, so it's a bit of a special situation. In this study, we didn't look specifically at rates of having what we would call a new primary breast cancer on the other breast. We would expect that double mastectomy would be better at preventing that. I think the issue here is that for women in the general population, their chance of a second breast cancer is so low that we didn't see any benefit from the surgery that way. I think it's a different story for women with genetic mutations and probably for women with strong family history. So it needs to be thought about on a case-by-case basis. Dr. Allison Kurian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Dr. Allison Curian, she is one of the authors of a new study published at the Journal of of the American Medical Association that says that women who choose the riskier double mastectomy to treat cancer affecting one breast may not boost their chances for survival. Thanks for listening to Wellness Wednesday today. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.